In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongues from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. This is God's word, and you may be seated. Now today we're beginning a new series of sermons. Uh, this summer we'll be looking at the character of God and looking at the attributes of God that, that have to do with His personality, His character, what He's like. And we begin with God's attribute of holiness. And, and this is a perfect passage to learn about the holiness of God. And so we're going to follow the flow of the passage. We're going to stay close to the text and follow the flow of the passage and consider three things together. So number one, we'll consider the vision of holiness, what Isaiah saw, the vision of holiness. Number two, we will talk about the trauma of holiness, the trauma of holiness, what Isaiah experienced as he was confronted with the holiness of God, his reaction. He said, woe is me, I'm undone. And then finally, we'll look at the gift of holiness by grace, the gift of holiness that God gives us through Jesus. So that's my plan, the vision of holiness, the trauma of holiness, and the gift of holiness. Now Isaiah was a prophet who um, had a vision of God on the throne, surrounded by these angelic beings called the seraphim, admiring God in ceaseless worship. We actually have several passages like that through the, throughout the scriptures. We read one in Revelation. These passages that... Um, reveal to us what is happening in God's presence and how these, these angelic beings recognize God exactly as He is and give Him the right kind of worship and praise that He deserves. And so here we have this kind of, uh, kind of vision that Isaiah is able to see and he's able to listen to the song of the seraphim. And the song is, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. Holy, holy, holy. As the seraphim admire God, as they consider His character, all they can say is that He is holy. There, there's no other description in Scripture that is applied to God more often than holy. There's not even, not even a contest. All the other attributes are, are here and there, you see it, but holiness is everywhere in the Scriptures. Holy, holy, holy. No other word in Scripture is repeated three times. Only holy is repeated three times in Scripture. So let's try to understand why 
this word is applied to God so often and why it's repeated three times in our passage here. Now, the basic idea behind the word holy is that of being separate, being different, being special. To be holy means to be sacred, to be set aside, set apart. There's something special about it. It has connotations of perfection, of purity, of excellence. God is holy in a sense that God is in a class of His own. He is unique in His perfection. God is transcendent in His purity. There's no one like Him. There's no one pure like Him. There's no one perfect like Him. There's nobody that can compare, be compared to Him. God is unique. God is holy. Now, some people, and, and I'm obviously reading a lot of books on the attributes of God throughout the summer, and, and most of them are probably familiar to you. If you've been in any church for any length of time, you've probably done a study on the attributes of God. And that's very valuable to us to do that because we get to see what God is like. And when you read those various books, you see how people classify these attributes differently. And some put holiness as one of the attributes. So you have God is love, God is, God is just, God is jealous, God is patient, God is holy. It's not wrong to do that, but I think there's a better way to understand holiness. I think the best way to think about holiness is to think of it as describing the whole of God's character. Holiness is something that applies to every attribute of God. It's the best way that we know how to describe God as He is. So I'll give you a couple of quotes from theologians to help us process that. R.C. Sproul, for example, says this, when the word holy is applied to God, it does not signify one single attribute. On the contrary, God is called holy in a general sense. The word is used as a synonym for His deity. That is, the word holy calls attention to all that God is. So Sproul says, when you say God is holy, you're saying that it's all of God. You're, you're, you're talking about all of His attributes together. It's not a separate thing. It's a, it's a general description of who God is. In other words, to say that God is holy is to say that God is God. This is who He is. This is what He's like. To say that God is holy is to simply point to His deity, His perfection, His nature. Now listen to John Piper. Piper says, His holiness is His utterly unique divine essence. It determines all that He is and does and is determined by no one. His holiness is what He is as God, which no one else is or ever will be. Call it His majesty, His divinity, His greatness, His value as the pearl of great price. In the end, language runs out. In the word holy, we have sailed to the world's end in the utter silence of reverence and wonder and awe. There may yet be more to know of God, but that will be beyond words. I love this quote from Piper because he begins trying to rationally explain to us what holiness is, and he ends with poetry. 
he starts by saying, let me explain what holiness is. It's majesty, it's greatness. He's using these words that we understand. And then at the end of this passage, he says, we're getting to the end of words. And yes, we can still use maybe some images to help us, but all we're left with is worship. (laughs) It's beyond words at some point. He's marveling at God. This is exactly what the seraphim are doing in our passage. They say holy, 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 but, but it's really just a verbal expression of something much deeper. This is the experience of the seraphim. They are surrounding God in this vision of Isaiah. And one says, holy. And then the other says, I, I don't think there's anything better that I can come up with, so I'm just going to repeat that. And he says, holy. And the third one reflects on that and says, I don't have anything better to add to that either, so I'm just going to repeat, holy. And they're just repeating holy over and over again as they observe God, as they marvel at his character, unable to find a better word. Now in Hebrew, repetition is used to express a superlative. So in other words, if you want to say pure gold, in Hebrew you would say gold, gold. You would just add another gold to it. And nowhere in Scripture we see anything repeated three times. Twice, yes. There are passages where it's repeated twice to tell us it's very bad or it's pure gold, stuff like that. But here, which is the only word in Scripture, is holy, that's repeated three times and it creates a super superlative. Now, this is why Piper says this goes beyond language, right? Because it breaks the rules of grammar. We know how to use two words in Hebrew to communicate a superlative, but that's not enough when you're describing God. So the seraphim say, we're going to add another superlative to that, and we'll make it a super superlative. The seraphim don't know what else to do to describe God, but to say that his holiness is the holiest. That's what they're doing. Now, this is the best way, according to the Bible, to describe God, is simply to say that he is holy, or that he is thrice holy. He's holy, holy, holy. Hannah, in her famous song in 1 Samuel 2, worships God, and and she arrives at the same conclusion as the seraphim do. She prays and praises God. She says, there is none holy like the Lord. For there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Hannah is saying, I can't find anything to compare you to. So I'm just going to say you are holy and there's no one like you. There's nobody like you. You're holy. God is holy. Now, we we start this series on the character of God with holiness because this is a foundational idea to understanding God. And before we get to specific qualities of his character, we must settle this question. Here's the question. Is God like someone or something else? Or is he categorically unique? That's the question. Now, if you don't settle that question before you get to the other attributes of God, you'll simply 
bring your ideas into those attributes. And so when you think about God as being love, you will simply imagine Him to be the kind of loving person that you think He should be. But if you settle this question and you say God is holy, He is unique in His character. There's no one like Him. Then you come to an attribute like love and you say He is love, but His love is holy love. Or He is just, but, but His justice is holy justice. Or he is jealous, but his jealousy is holy jealousy, which means we don't have those categories. We have to create them based on what God himself reveals about himself. Now, this is very important because we all have ideas of what love is, of what justice is, what patience is. We all have those ideas. And it's very easy just to bring our own ideas and try to fit God into them. But if you start with holiness... What you're starting with is you're saying, God is unlike anyone else. He's utterly unique. He's holy, holy, holy. Which means that I have to understand God on his own terms. I have to discover what he's like. I don't get to shape his character. I get to discover what he's like based on his own revelation. This, this is why it's so important to settle the issue of holiness first, and then you get to the other attributes. Now, recently, there have been several high-profile deconversions, we call them. Deconversion is, is, is somebody who all his life, sometimes all her life, was an evangelical believer, trusted the Bible, trusted Christ, proclaimed Christ, sometimes very effectively, and then at one point they say, usually it's a, it's a it's a public declaration. They say, I no longer believe or I no longer identify as an evangelical, for example, or as a follower of Christ. And typically, what we have seen is that it is usually prompted by a change of opinion on sexuality, sexual ethics, sexual behavior, or political affiliation. And that gets the headlines. I can no longer follow Jesus in this way. I can no longer trust Scripture because it conflicts with my idea of sexuality, with my idea of politics, whatever it may be. And we focus on that. And we spend a lot of time on talking about how we need to accept what the Bible says about sex. We need to accept what the Bible says about politics. And of course we do. But I'd like to suggest to you that the main issue in these deconversions is not actually sexuality or politics. It's holiness. I think the issue is that the question of holiness was never settled. And so when a particular truth from Scripture conflicts with me, with what I feel, what I believe right now, it's a conflict, and because I don't see God as holy on His own terms, I now feel like I have a choice. I can take a part of God or I can reshape God, or I can say, now, this is my religion. This is my piety now. This is how I worship. This is who I worship now. That leaves a lot of flexibility for me because I've never settled the issue of holiness. I've never seen God as He Himself presented Himself, unchangeable, somebody that I cannot change. I need to accept Him as He is. So when a person deconverts, Often this is how it happens. They're saying, 
I wanted God to be holy as I am holy. You see? I wanted Him to be this way. I wanted Him to, to agree with me, to respond to what I think is right. And if He doesn't, if He doesn't measure up to my understanding of holiness, to my understanding of what's right or what's wrong, what's moral, what's immoral, if He doesn't do that, well then, I can change Him. I can leave Him altogether if I need to. Because in this relationship, I am holy. And He's not. Eugene Peterson says the following on this tension between wanting to believe in God but struggling to accept Him on His terms. Peterson says, The Bible isn't interested in whether we believe in God or not. It assumes that everyone more or less does. What it is interested in is the response we have to Him. Will we let God be as He is? Majestic and holy, vast and wondrous, or will we always be trying to whittle him down to the size of our, our small minds, insist on confining him within the boundaries we are comfortable with, refuse to think of him other than in images that are convenient to our lifestyle? But then we're not dealing with the God of creation or the Christ of the cross, but with the dime store reproduction of something made in our image usually for commercial reasons. I think that's where the battle is. At least that's where the battle is in my heart. And I would imagine that I'm pretty typical of a human being. We're struggling. We're struggling because we want God to be a certain way because He fits. You see? I don't need to change. He simply affirms who I am. But this is not how God does things. God comes as He is. And of course, He is as He is. He is holy. He is as He is, as He revealed Himself to Moses. I am what I am. And you take me on my terms. You deal with me as I am. I am holy, and you need to adjust to me. And so this is the vision of holiness. God as He is. Now let's keep following the flow of our passage. Because what happens next is really important. When Isaiah gets the vision of God's holiness... He responds a certain way. So look at verses 4 and 5 of Isaiah 6. The foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Isaiah said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Something happens here. Isaiah is unable to join in with the seraphim. Maybe we would have expected him to also sing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, but he's not doing that. What is happening here is what Tozer, A.W. Tozer, calls an emotionally violent experience. An emotionally violent experience. R.C. Sproul calls it the trauma of holiness. Trauma of holiness. Isaiah is undone. He has been confronted with the holiness of God and it has crushed him. He realizes that he does not belong in the presence of the most holy God. He can't join in with the seraphim in worship. Their hymn 
which they are joyfully singing, to him sounds like a death sentence pronounced on him by the Holy God. Isaiah knows instinctively what Hebrews 12, 14 tells us explicitly, that without holiness, no one will see God. And he has a vision of God. And he says, I don't belong here. Woe is me. I am ruined. I am undone because God is holy and I don't belong in his presence. How can I see him? He knows that at any moment he could be utterly destroyed. And so he's crying out to God. He says, woe is me. I'm a sinner. I'm a man of unclean lips. I can't join into this worship. Now why is that? Why can't Isaiah admire God's character? Why, why is there such a difference? Why does he feel this threat? Well, holiness is one of those attributes of God that we call communicable attributes, meaning that God shares them with us. There are communicable attributes and incommunicable attributes. Communicable attributes are things like love and patience and faithfulness. Those are things that we are to emulate. We need to share in them. God made us a certain way, and we're supposed to be like God in certain ways. Now, incommunicable attributes are God's alone. Omniscience, eternity, omnipresence, those are God's things that we are never commanded to share. God doesn't tell us to be at all places at the same time and expects us to do that. That's God's thing. That's who he is. That's not us. We're never made like that. We're confined by space and time. We're not called to know everything that there is to be known. But we are called to be holy. We were made in God's image, which means that our bond with God, or our, our connection with God, is based in our likeness of Him. We reflect Him already. What He is, is what He demands us to be. There, there's a connection. We are, we are His reflections. We're made in His image, and we're supposed to be holy as He is holy. Leviticus 19.2 tells us that. God says to Israel, you shall be holy for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Jesus in Matthew 5 says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, we're made to pursue holiness. I am convinced that nobody can live without the pursuit of holiness. There are just different ways to do it. Now, there are two ways, I think. One, we can resemble God in his holiness. We can reflect his character in our character. This is what Adam and Eve did in the garden. I think they were simply reflecting who God was. They're simply resembling him. They are his images. They are his reflections. And so they lived in connection with God, and his holiness was their holiness. But then tempted by the serpent, they pursued holiness in a very different, opposite, in fact, way. They became God's rivals. They wanted to be like God. Everybody wants to be like God. But there are two ways. You can be like God in reflection of his character, or you can be like God in replacement of his character with yours. Adam and Eve said, we will be like God, we will be holy, we will be separate from him. We will be unique in our own moral excellence. We ourselves will become the standard of perfection and purity. They're still pursuing holiness. They're still trying to be like God, but they're doing that in opposition to God, severing that connection, marring the image of God in them. Now, do you see the difference? 
two ways. You can resemble God in your holiness, or you can rival God in your holiness. God's call to holiness is to reflect and resemble Him. The serpent's call to holiness is to rival and replace Him. Now, this is the essence of sin, isn't it? Instead of conforming to God's holiness, we set out to create our own. Instead of embracing God's image, we set out to reshape God in our image. Now, Isaiah is undone in the presence of the holy God because he realizes he was a rival to him. While he has a vision of God on the throne, Isaiah recognizes that God does not occupy that same lofty place in his life. He's a man of unclean lips, he says. How can he worship God with the seraphim when his lips are used to give glory to others and to blaspheme God's name? He feels that tension. He feels that the trauma of holiness, the confrontation of this is God and this is me and, and it doesn't match. I'm not like him. I'm trying to be like him in opposition to him, but I'm not resembling him. I'm not reflecting his nature. The seraphim are reflecting God's glory in ceaseless worship, admiring God's character, but Isaiah is not welcome there because he has set his holiness in opposition to God's. And God doesn't tolerate competitors and rebels in his presence. He is holy. He alone is holy, holy, holy. There's no one else. Now, another way to see the difference between these two pursuits of holiness is to notice two types of fear that occur in response to God's holiness. Isaiah's fear is the dread of a rival. Confronted with God's holiness, he's traumatized, he's scared, he is repelled by his sin. But the seraphim's fear is very different. Their fear is the, the awe of a lover. Confronted with God's holiness, they're thrilled. They're thrilled to be there. Now, they're still experiencing the fear of God, but their fear is one of attraction. They're pulled into God's presence. Yes, there's fear, but it's that fear that draws you in. Isaiah's fear is the fear that repulses you, that, that takes you out. Revelation 15, 4 says, Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All will fear God. All human beings will fear God. Some will fear Him to their exclusion from His presence because of their sin. Others will fear Him to their inclusion into His presence and worship. He alone is holy. So we can try to compete with Him and lose, or we can lose ourselves to Him and burn with love for Him like the seraphim. Let me ask you this. Have you experienced the trauma of holiness? Have you been confronted with who God is? Whether it's a vision, whether it's a truth proclaimed to you, whether it's an experience in your heart, but where you, you, you came to God and you saw Him as He is and you've realized that you were not holy. He is, but you're not have you been confronted with who God is and come undone like Isaiah? 
No sinner can truly know God without the emotionally violent experience of His holiness. We all have to go through it. We can agree with a lot of things that God is, but unless we have this experience, which is what we call conversion, this experience of coming to grips with who God is and then looking at yourself and realizing who you are, you can't reconcile with God. You need to see the chasm. You need to see how big it is to, to bridge it. Have you been confronted with God's holiness in this way? Have you experienced the trauma of holiness? And have you settled the question of holiness as it relates to who God is? Well, we're all sinners, all rivals to God. Can our trauma be healed? And the gospel answer is yes. Praise God that this passage doesn't end where I just ended reading, right? Where Isaiah says, woe to me, I am lost, I'm a man of unclean lips. But it goes on, and there's hope for us, and there's a blueprint for us, there's a pattern for us of how God deals with unholy people. Now look at verses seven, 6 and 7. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, Isaiah tells us, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongues from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. Now what happened? What happened to this unclean sinner who has been traumatized by the holiness of God? What happened? Grace. Grace happened. Grace happened because God doesn't treat him as he deserves. God does something completely unexpected. The seraphim, one of the, the seraphs, goes, gets a burning coal from the altar, the altar on which a sacrifice is brought in the temple. This is this picture of the heavenly worship, the heavenly sanctuary, the heavenly altar where the greatest sacrifice is brought before God. And so the angel goes and gets a burning coal and he comes and he applies it to the lips of Isaiah. Why the lips? Because Isaiah said, I'm a man of unclean lips. This is his part that's unclean. He says, this needs to be healed. I need to be healed. I'm unclean. And so the seraph applies it to his lips and then he says with the authority of God, he says, your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. Completely by grace, as a gift, God made Isaiah, the sinner, the rebel, the rival, acceptable in God's holy presence. And he did it through a sacrifice on the altar. Now the term for this, and every once in a while I want to give you a, a, a theological term. A term for this is imputation. Imputation. God takes someone else's righteousness, someone else's holiness, and then he imputes it to someone who is not holy and not righteous. So he takes something and then he applies it to someone else. And then he treats that person as if that person were holy and righteous themselves. The sacrifice on the heavenly altar in Isaiah's vision is the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And it is his holiness, the burning holiness of Christ that is applied to the unclean lips of Isaiah. And it is imputed to him, it's given to him, it's reckoned to him, it's transferred to him, it's credited to him as his by faith. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 
Jesus, who knew no sin, perfectly holy, pure, perfect, moral excellence, unrivaled, utterly unique, this person, this God, became a human being, exhibited holiness in, in human form, and yet was made to be sin and treated as sin so that we in him might become the righteousness, the holiness of God himself. Jesus Christ, God and man together. Jesus is both God and both human, perfectly in one person, two natures, reflecting the holiness of God in his human form, was undone in the place of sinners. On the cross, Jesus experienced the ultimate trauma of holiness because he was treated as sin. And there was no angel, there was no seraph coming to his help. He did it for us so that we can be treated as those who are possessive of of God's holiness of God by right. Isaiah is pulled into God's presence through the sacrifice on the altar. We are pulled into God's presence through the sacrifice of the Holy One on the cross. Now, friends, instead of being excluded by our sin, we are included, pulled in, as a gift of God's grace in Jesus Christ. Has it happened to you? Has it happened to you? It's not enough just to be traumatized by God's holiness. There are many people who live in fear of God and are repelled by God. And they they are avoiding God because they're scared of Him. That's the trauma. But there's healing. And the healing comes through the sacrifice of Christ. So has your trauma of holiness been healed by the cross of Jesus? Has your sin been atoned for by his blood? Has your guilt been taken away? Hebrews 10 says, And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. We have been sanctified. We have been made holy. That's what the word means. We've been made holy through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. That means that because Jesus died and the sacrifice was offered to God on our behalf, as soon as the burning coal is applied to us by faith, as soon as that happens, we are pronounced holy. We're made holy. We're sanctified. Has it happened to you? But that's not all that God has to offer to us. There's more. Along with the imputation of holiness by faith, we are promised impartation of holiness. Another theological term for you today. Impartation of holiness by the Holy Spirit. Meaning that God doesn't just credit Christ's holiness to us and proclaims us, declares us to be holy and acceptable in His sight. He also then imparts practically gives us the holiness of God through the work of the Holy Spirit. So heaven made us positionally holy in Jesus, acceptable in Jesus. God is now determined to make us practically holy by the Holy Spirit. Have you noticed, as you read the the New Testament, that Christians are often called saints in the New Testament, especially in the epistles? Paul often addresses other Christians as saints, Now, what does he mean by that? 
Well, we are saints, of course, because we have been made holy by Jesus, by the sacrifice of Jesus. God sees us as holy so we can address each other as saints in God's eyes. But secondly, we are saints because we live in pursuit of practical holiness. We used to be rebels, and now we've been reconciled to God by His grace. And because God has done this for us, we no longer want to to live like rebels. We no longer want to live like orphans because we've been adopted into His family. We want to be like Jesus, the human expression of the holiness of God. And God promises that we will be conformed to His image. And it is the Spirit of God that does it. It's the Holy Spirit who makes us holy. Now look at 1 Peter 1, 14 through 16. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. The passions of my former ignorance. I used to be a rival to God. I used to be a rebel. I used to be one who opposed God. But now, this is the call that is to me. As he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Let me finish with this illustration. Jen Wilkin, in her book on on the attributes of God, shares her experience of going to visit her brother in Detroit in the winter. Have you been to Detroit in the wintertime? I have. A lifelong Texan, Jen Wilkin, is completely unprepared for the cold weather and was teased by her brother. And then she writes, When my brother moved to Detroit from Texas 30 years ago, no doubt he showed up as ill-prepared and odd-fitting as I had. But over time, he learned to put off his old Texas clothes and accent and habits and to put on those that matched his new status as a Michigander. He acclimated to his new environment. Holiness is like that. It is a process of acclimation by which we learn to behave like the children of God and not like the children of wrath. The more we clothe ourselves in newness of life, the more incongruous we will feel in our old environments and the more at home we will feel with the redeemed. Our separateness will become increasingly evident to those among whom we once walked. Our conversation will affect consecration, a holiness that we need, certainly, but also a holiness that we want above all else. For this is the will of God, our sanctification. Do you know the holy God? Has your trauma of holiness been healed by the sacrifice of Jesus? And are you striving to become more like Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit?